Hey, Chris Garlock here. I'm finding a spring cold, so my voice is a bit froggy, but it's not COVID, so I'm not complaining. Workers' Memorial Day, also known as International Workers' Memorial Day or International Commemoration Day for Dead and Injured, takes place annually around the world on April 28th, an international day of remembrance and action for workers killed, disabled, injured, or made unwell by their work. Big Steve Sutton was one of those workers, killed on July 18, 1932, near the Marseilles Dam on the Illinois River in Marseilles, Illinois. This Thursday, on Workers' Memorial Day, a historical marker for Big Steve and the 21 other workers injured on that day will be dedicated in Marseilles, Illinois. On today's show, we'll find out who Big Steve was and why we remember his death and the struggles of his fellow workers all these years later. Our guide is Michael Matejka, a labor historian and journalist who spoke with co-host Ed Smith and me on the Your Rights at Work radio show last week. Also on today's show, a double shot of labor history in two. The year was 1937. That was the day a truce came in the Stockton cannery workers' strike. The year was 2013, the day of the deadliest workplace disaster in garment industry history. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Steve Sutton died there on the bridge. Local 393 was born. A black and white picture of the coming of the Lord. The dam is broken. The river come. Night falls on the river valley. Night falls on the mines and fields. Night falls on the just and unjust. Welcome back to Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ned. That was Tom Morello, a little clip from his song, Night Falls. It's about the incident back in 1932. This is the subject of this next segment. April 28th is Workers' Memorial Day that honors workers killed or injured on the job. Next week, a memorial to Big Steve Sutton is going to be dedicated in Marseille, Illinois. And with us now to tell us about Big Steve is our final guest on today's show, Michael Matejka. He's an officer in the Illinois Labor History Society. Michael, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thank you and delighted to be here. So I have to say, you know, I, I try to know everything there is to know about labor history, which, of course, uh, is uh, you know, an impossible task. I did not know about Big Steve Sutton. So what happened to Big Steve on July 18th, 1932? Well, the, the federal dam project, federal, you know, during the Depression, the federal government was giving money for work projects and the Illinois River Dam at Marseilles was to be renovated. And people in the Illinois Valley along the Illinois River were very excited about this happening. A New Orleans contractor won the job and um, imported their workers from out of state. So you had about 126, 130 out-of-state workers on the job. Local unemployed people held a demonstration on July 18, 1932, they were going to come back the next day. That night, the construction company armed the out-of-state workers. And on July 19th, 
when the um, unemployed workers started to march on the job site again, the out-of-state workers were hiding in railroad cars along the way there and basically opened fire on them. Um, Steve Sutton was was killed, two gunshot wounds, one to the lung, another to the abdomen. Another union member was blinded, was shot through the eye, and 21 others were injured. And it was about a half-hour fight with billy clubs and fists and sticks and who knows what else until finally the local sheriff and the uh, state police arrived. They arrested all the out-of-state workers, I think basically to protect them. And um, and the um, calm was restored. What's really tragic with this incident is the job site supervisor, Herbert Miller Jr., seemed to be a very arrogant young man. His dad, Herbert Sr., was actually down the road in Joliet, Illinois, meeting with the laborers and the electricians unions to negotiate local hire. And as his dad is driving from Joliet back to Marseilles, um, this incident takes place. And if that gentleman had arrived an hour or two hours earlier, this may never have happened. Um, but out of this, um, because of the need to staff the dam project and because the company then decided to use local union labor, Labor's Local 393 in Marseilles, Illinois, was founded um, shortly afterwards and is really a, a powerhouse local union in that part of Illinois. Uh, Ed Smith? Uh, well, Mike, first of all, thanks for uh, sharing that with us. Uh, like Chris, I tried to be a labor, uh, quote-unquote, historian, but that this is something I was not aware of. And... and um, so the dynamic between dad and son, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm guessing that the dad had hired these out-of-staters, but then maybe had a, 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 a voice of reason tell him that maybe I should uh, talk to some of these other folks. How, what, how did that occur? Was there a pressure put on him prior to the march? Um, local pressure, local, you know, any kind of things that happened to to convene that meeting. Yeah, and, and you know, to imagine, it's the Great Depression. There's no welfare programs. There's no Social Security. There's no unemployment insurance. And a federal project comes to a small town in Illinois, and people are overjoyed. You know, we're going to get work. And suddenly this out-of-state crew shows up. So it's not just unemployed workers, you know, local merchants, local landlords. You know, the whole community is going to suffer if the income from this goes to other parts of the country. So there was considerable, you know, back pressure applied and saying, you know, we got to get some local people on this job. And, you know, this is the same time that the federal prevailing wage law is first coming into effect. And, and if the federal prevailing wage had been enforced, it might have created a very different situation because the out-of-state workers were being paid um, 20 to 25 percent less than the prevailing wage for that area. But again, that's a brand new law and who knows what kind of enforcement mechanisms were in place. But it seems like like dad was a much more reasonable man. And I almost get an impression. And again, I don't have any factual evidence of this, but his son was going to prove how tough he was um, on this job site and that he could run a job and run the job he wanted the way he wanted to run it. And uh you know, again, 
you can understand unemployed people. You can also understand hungry people from other parts of the country happy to get a job, too. Um, but that the son went out and bought shotguns and rifles and billy clubs and pistols to uh, to arm these out-of-state workers, you know, that's almost creating a recipe for confrontation. And I want to get into that a little bit, actually, because I think, you know, we, we just had the, the, the earlier part of the show talking, you know, folks who are organizing in Starbucks who are facing all kinds of opposition, you know, from, from their bosses. I mean, being blocked on Twitter, for example. Um, but this sort of thing where you have, you know, these, these uh, pitched physical battles is something that, you know, usually you see like in the auto work, you see, you see in th- those kinds of things with, with sit-ins, you know, where they sent in troops or, or goons. And, and this is the first one, I'm not saying auto ones don't exist, but this is the first one, you know, where it's kind of, it's basically like building trades kinds of folks. Uh, so that was, that was interesting. I'd like you to talk about that. But the other thing is just reading through some of your material it seems like it was almost like a two-step thing. On July 18th, the, the workers had gathered to demand the jobs, but they were turned away. And then they came back the next day, and they found the company had set up a barricade. So, you know, with guns and, and dynamite, I mean, it, I, I just, it seems, I'm, I'm trying to understand how that happens. Yeah, you know, and and again, knowing, I think part of it, Things like the auto workers and the sit-down strikes, those make national news. Right. But, but this is not an unknown incident in the building trades, but because it's localized, it's not in a large urban setting. Um, it does make the front page of the Chicago Tribune the next day, but does it maybe get a little byline in, in AP or UPA wires across the country? And um and I think part of it, too, is that particular region of Illinois, which is where the Illinois-Michigan Canal is dug, um, early railroad construction. There is a almost 80-year history of confrontation in that valley around. It's a huge coal mining area. It's a huge industrial area. If you've ever heard of the Cherry Mine disaster, 259 people killed on November 13, 1909, you know, that's 20 miles down the road. So this is an area that that had very early strong unionization and uh, people were were willing and ready to stand up for their rights. Ed Smith? Yeah, and and back then, of course, you had not necessarily a ton of rights, didn't have the uh, National Labor Relations Act at that point, didn't have Taft-Hartley. But uh, what's interesting is to me, is they arm the workers rather than bring in Pinkertons or something else. So that, that to me was like a different element, you know, when you read about the coal miners and, you know, out in Colorado and Idaho, and of course, uh, uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, all those places. And I, I just, I, I'm surprised there weren't more people killed, but I guess if the Pinkertons there, there probably would have been half of them killed. And maybe we're lucky that some of these out-of-state workers probably were not good shots. <laughs> but well, I don't know if you have a comment on on, on the, the the strategy of arming workers. Yeah, and I and you got to stop and think too. You know, you're here. You you probably don't know the situation you're walking into. You're lured here to get a job, and they and you see people out there angry. And they give you a rifle and tell you to shoot them. You're like, well, wait a minute. You know, I didn't come up here for that. <laughs> and, and so, 
you got to stop and think how many of these 100 plus workers actually bought into this scheme and in the back of their minds too um you know they're they're facing they're in strange territory they could be going to prison so how deeply do they get involved in this uh in this melee that takes place here and i think your other point too is you know you look back at 1932 33 34 and the number of strikes that end up in violent situation, whether it's it's the early steel strikes, the 1930s, whether it's Toledo, Ohio, Minneapolis, Minnesota, San Francisco with Longshore strike. You know, I think so much of the National Labor Relations Board came because the federal government and society finally realized we got to take these things out of the streets and find a way to solve these issues without tearing whole communities apart. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Big Steve Sutton. Um, He was a a Croatian immigrant. Yeah, and it's been very hard to track down more about him. We know he worked as an iron worker. We know he worked as a laborer. Um, We've actually, he left a wife and four children behind. Mm. And, And actually, the local union there for the last 10 years has been trying to find any survivors of his family. And uh, the Joliet newspaper actually ran a story for us last month. You know, is anybody out there um, related to this person, which might be grand, even great grandchildren today? And we've never been able to surface anybody who was part of that family. So, you know, again, folks, I don't know if he immigrated as a young adult, if he was brought as a child to the United States. Um, You know, there's a lot of a lot of unanswered questions here that we still have not fully um, un- unearthed about him, um, but many, the local union has been working on this for over 10 years, and uh, many of the people that actually were there that day and some of their children, you know, were able to relay stories. Most of them are gone now, but, uh, you know, they were able to tell stories about their what happened that day, and we're pretty certain where this historical marker is going to be is actually where it all took place, just based on the firsthand testimony we received from people. So, uh, Mike, you're you're uh, a part of the Illinois Labor History Society, and it, you know, and it kind of what I think Ed raised this, but it, it does raise the question of of uh, you know labor history is often you know, we don't have a lot of monuments you know we don't have a lot of monuments we don't have a lot of markers uh, you know that our our history kind of is what you were just talking about it, it it tends to live on or die in 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 the memories so can you just talk a little bit about the broader issue of sort of trying to keep keep that history alive? Yeah, and and again for background, the Illinois Labor History Society was founded in 1969. There was this guy called Studs Terkel who was very critical <laughs> to our uh, beginning, and it was founded because in Chicago there was nothing to mark the Haymarket except the statue of the police officer right. that had been erected after the incident. It took 35 years to get a monument in Haymarket, but and now we're working on Lucy Parsons Park in Chicago, which has been designated, but how to memorialize that. And there's a Mother Jones group working on a Mother Jones statue for downtown Chicago. But uh, throughout the state, we've got things like the Mother Jones and the Union Miners Cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois. Um, Go through the coal mining towns in Southern Illinois, and it doesn't take long to find a cemetery where there's a marker the local community put up 
And the Illinois State Historical Society really wants to partner with us. This is one that, that was very obscure to many people, but in November, we put up an Illinois State historical marker in the booming metropolis of Panama, Illinois, which has fewer than 400 residents. But Panama, Illinois is where John L. Lewis was first elected to union office. And so, you know, that community is very proud, you know, even though the working mine has not been there for over 50 years of their association with the United Mine Workers and John L. Lewis. And so it was the whole town came out, you know, when we unveiled that marker last November to the beginning of a, of an incredible personality in American labor. You know, this is where the guy first won a union election was in this little coal mining town in central Illinois. Well, just before, before I get Ed back in here, just to remind folks of, I mean, Lewis was, uh, I think, colorful is it probably doesn't even do all John L. justice, does it? No. No, I mean, it's, it's it's so fascinating to read newspapers accounts when he's testifying before Congress. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing that that you have to remember about Lewis. He did go to high school. He was born in, in Iowa, but he commuted on the train to go to high school and he took theater and he took it very seriously. Huh, did not know that. Yeah. So when you look at his speeches, you look at his delivery, you look at his use of Shakespearean language, you know, it. It, I think that ability for a coal miner's son to go to uh, high school and and kind of learn those techniques, he he polished and used those very well. Excellent. Let me get you back in on this. Well, this is just the fascinating <laughs> full hour. Um, but John Lewis, also what people don't seem to remember or or, or read about is that he was actually – um, considered very seriously to be a vice presidential candidate back in 1936, I believe, maybe 40. Um, but that's how we've changed. No one would ever think to ask Liz Schuler to run for VP. Um, and that's how we've changed. And of course, that was a time when we probably had about 35% of the country unionized. My, uh, my question or another point um, for I don't know how many years, my, my organization, DC Nurses Association, we've never had archives or an archivist. And we finally started to put this together. And what I find fascinating is I, I found something from about a hundred and almost 20 years ago when we first organized, we weren't in a labor union, but it looks like we might have a photo of one of the initial founders of DCNA. And uh, I was so happy to see that. And I'm, I'm trying to pull it out. I think it's at Johns Hopkins University. But I was thinking about Joe Hill. Joe Hill, everybody knows the name, everybody knows the songs. But when I read books on Joe Hill, it was very, very hard to kind of find his history. And that's the difficulty about oral histories that we don't seem to pass down as well. And it's it's wonderful to see an organization like yours really work on these. How, how prevalent are some of the labor historical societies elsewhere, like uh, New York, D.C., Philly, New York has a very active association, Wisconsin, Pacific Northwest. Um, there should be one in every state in the union. Um, I know there's a good group around Homestead and, and Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh area. Um, and I think the other thing, too, because so much of this is oral tradition, you know, training union members to talk to their elders and get these stories. But also, you know, when you look at labor history, you get 
the UAW, you get the coal miners, you get the steel workers, the strikes that had national impact. You don't always get what's happening with the carpenters or the sheet metal workers or the nurses, you know, that tend to be very localized stories. And unless somebody's actively out digging those, um, they don't get saved. Um, in 2000, I wrote a book on Illinois firefighters because Illinois firefighters rate, did a multi-year battle before fire for public employee unionization was allowed in Illinois. And the leadership of that union is like, we want to get the story done while the people who lived it are still alive. You know, so I roamed the state interviewing people in firehouses, you know, about that fight for public employee legislation and a couple of controversial firefighter strikes around the state. Um, just because, you know, you didn't want to just go back and find newspaper clippings, but find the real stories of these folks who, who live those experiences. And that's, I think that's a task that every union should take to heart. Well, just real, real briefly, um, we had a one day strike last Monday at DCNA and it was covered pretty nicely by the, uh, news media. It was not covered at all by the Washington post. Hmm. So. 50 years from now, somebody wanted to find out about that in the print. They find out about it from some of the other papers in D.C. and some of the other publications. And obviously, nowadays, it's easier because you've got Internet. But the major newspaper in D.C. didn't cover it. Yeah. And, and again, what newspapers get archived? You know, what, what newspapers get preserved? Which ones get on microfilm? Which ones? My one I love is newspapers.com which is over 400 newspapers around the country, you can word search, but it's very spotty as to which geographically where those 400 newspapers are. Yeah, so. Hey, Mike, before we, before we let you go, two things. One is uh, just talk about uh, the laborers, <laughs> which this incident really was, was key in, in, uh, in, in laborers local 393. And I also want to make sure you have time to talk about um, the, uh, the dedication of the, uh, it's a it's a marker, not a memorial. Correct. Yeah. And and again, you know, when I talk about localized history, you know, almost this is true of almost all the building trades. You know, it, it happens in a community where people go through a struggle to organize, to establish themselves as a local union. And, um, you know, the, and I think one thing as a laborer, as a member myself of Laborers International Union, you know, I helped pull together our history for our centennial in 2003. And Labor's was a, an immigrant union. You know, and, and Samuel Gompers came to the first convention and said to the Labor's, if you try to discriminate by ethnicity or race, you will never succeed. Because at that time, the Labor was the guy down in the ditch with a shovel. And there was always somebody new off the boat who was ready to do that job. So you have to be an inclusive organization and, uh, you know, and the laborers looking at their history, that's that they've held pretty fast and tight and still their efforts to organize immigrant workers today. You know, they take that tradition seriously. And I think also just to fill people in, if you want to come to Marseilles, Illinois, right off Interstate 80, um, 5 p.m. on Workers Memorial Day, um, April 28th. We will have the governor of Illinois, we'll have the treasurer, the state comptroller, the state AFL-CIO, and that incredible musician, Tom Morello, who spent, oh, his, he spent his childhood summers in Marseilles, Illinois. 
Wow. So he is deeply attached to that community. And when he heard about this, he definitely wanted to be there. So I'd encourage people to go on YouTube and look up Tom Morello at a union rally. And you will see this man has got incredible union spirit and oh, really yeah. knows how to mobilize an, an audience. So we're deeply honored that he's going to join us on Workers Memorial Day for this ceremony. Well, Mike, you know, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of Tom Morello and, and me and Chris play a number of his songs on uh, uh, on our breaks here. Uh, Save the Hammer for the Man is one of my favorites. Maybe you could ask him to play that. Uh, but I uh, did not know he was from or spent time there. That's interesting as well. And uh, really appreciate you being on the uh, show today. Really, really appreciate all your efforts. And uh, boy, I'd love to get you to D.C. to talk to our nurses about the importance of archiving. By the way, my um, uncle was the city of Boston's first archivist. And oh, yeah. uh, they didn't do that until probably the 90s, I believe. Yeah. City of Boston. Can yeah. you believe it? Yeah, which should have records back to the 1600s, right? Yeah, and he uh, helped uh, kind of develop the computerized system to do it. And uh, by the way, just a shout out to Ed Quill. That's uh, my uncle. He was a reporter for the Boston Globe for years. And the mayor at the time asked him to uh, start the city archivist. And and I just, you know, the importance of that is so huge. Uh, and our, our union has a very long history, but to ask any of us what happened in the 80s, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that just disappeared. Anything else you want to leave us with before well, I get I would just add, you've got a great group in D.C. there with Labor Heritage Foundation, you know, and I know they're always ready and willing to, to jump in on these kind of projects and efforts also. But, you know, please save those stories and memorialize them, you know, same way up in just just close to you is the spot is marked with a Maryland marker where Mother Jones died. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day a truce came in the Stockton cannery workers' strike. It was a pivotal moment that embodied the conflicts of the 1930s labor movement. The AFL initially wrote agricultural workers off as unorganizable. They soon raced to unionize California canneries ahead of the International Longshoremen's Association's March Inland to organize warehouse workers. By early April, Agricultural Workers Union 202 221, representing five canneries, demanded higher pay, better working conditions, and a closed shop. The canners and growers refused on the basis that they had just granted a 25% raise to the workers. They then attempted to spike union support among workers, whether AFL or CIO, by arguing, quote, one was dominated by communists, the other by racketeers. So take your choice. Soon, they formed a Citizens Labor Investigating Committee to thwart the impending strike. Picket lines went up in the early hours of April 15th. Growers and canners appealed to law enforcement to do something and appealed to the public to enlist in the forcible reopening of the canneries. Dubbed the Pick Handle Army, anti-union forces joined the sheriff's department in confronting the strikers on the 23rd. There, they battled with picketers for over three hours in what is referred to as the Spinach Riot. 
Picketers confronted scabs and spinach delivery drivers and were beaten, gassed, and shot by sheriff's forces, resulting in one death and 58 injuries of strikers. Considered one of the worst labor battles in California's history, the state federation moved to strip the union of its charter once the truce was called. They reorganized workers as Cannery Workers Union 20676 and won sole recognition. But agricultural workers would remain unorganized for years to come. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2013, the day of the deadliest workplace disaster in garment industry history. More than 1,100 workers lost their lives when a factory complex building collapsed in Bangladesh. More than 2,500 workers were injured. The day before the collapse, workers had noticed cracks in the building. A bank and shops on the lower floor did not open the next day, fearful that the structure was unstable. The garment workers were ordered back to work under the threat of being fired. Rescue efforts continued for nearly three weeks. One woman was found alive after 17 days. She was a seamstress. Bangladesh's garment industry is the second largest in the world, ranking only behind China. Nearly half of the top brands in the United States are produced in Bangladesh. The workers there are amongst the lowest paid in the world. Legal restrictions make trade union organizing in the country very difficult. A later investigation found that the building was built without authorization on a pond and converted from commercial to industrial use. It was also discovered the owners had cut corners and used substandard materials in the constructing of the building. In addition, the owners added three more floors than were originally included in the building permit. In the aftermath of the disaster, more than 150 clothing companies signed a workers safety accord. Most of these were European companies. This plan was backed by Bangladeshi unions. Some large U.S. chains such as Walmart and Gap refused to sign, saying that they had their own safety plans. It's important to note that the result of inspections under the Walmart back plan were not legally binding. After the 2013 disaster, it was estimated that it would take $3 billion to make the garment factories in the country safe. Today, Bangladesh has more than 4,000 garment factories, and many of them remain dangerous places to work. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please help more folks find the show, like it on your podcast app, pass it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Thank you. Thanks also to Michael Matejka and the Illinois Labor History Society for the report on Big Steve Sutton. You can find out more about the April 28th dedication of the historical marker and lots more fascinating Illinois labor history at IllinoisLaborHistory.org. Music today was Tom Morello from his song Night Falls. As Mike mentioned, Tom will be performing at the dedication this Thursday. And as always, thanks so much to Labor History into a partnership between, no surprise here, the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. 
Steve Sutton died there on the bridge Local 393 was born A black and white picture of the coming of the Lord The dam is broken, the river come Night falls on the river 